This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. We hope you enjoyed our talk on last week's program with Greg Pallast, investigative journalist and and activist, even though he denies the the term. When it comes to the stealing of elections, Greg is kind of the go-to guy. If you didn't check it out, we we advise you to do so. Since we spoke last week, uh, there's been quite a few events taking place that we have noted. Uh, A little matter of a Russian invasion of Ukraine is something we need to talk about, although frankly, I don't think we're going to find time on today's program to do so. We also note with great sadness the passing of a legendary humorist, P.J. O'Rourke. We need to say a few things about P.J. later in this segment. We had the chance to interview him many years back, and we jumped at it. In fact, Mr. Miller and I had to get up at 5 a.m., 8 a.m. East Coast time. When we made contact, he made reference to, boy, I guess you really wanted this interview. And we said, yes, we did. And an article appeared a couple of weeks ago in the East Bay Times and San Jose Mercury News about some of the shenanigans associated with the Raiders flying the coop from Oakland two years ago. The investigative journalist and sports writer Jason Cole put that together. And in our second segment today, we're going to talk to Jason about that most curious piece. And although I just said we're not going to talk too much about Ukraine, I did want to quote just a couple of sentences out of The Economist. In the current edition, they said, by the time it began, early on a gloomy gray morning on February 24th, the onslaught against Ukraine ordered by Russian President Vladimir Putin has acquired a sickening inevitability. Yet, nothing about this war was inevitable. It is a conflict entirely of his own making. In the fighting and the misery that is to come, much Ukrainian and Russian blood will be spilled. Every drop of it will be splattered on Mr. Putin's hands. Personally, I find that to be closer to the truth than the sort of things I'm hearing from both the right and the left, that somehow it seems to be capitalist saber-rattling, if you listen to the leftists, that's, that's uh, to blame for this, uh, this conflict. The right, on the other hand, seems to, to blame uh, Joe Biden and his lack of spine uh, to promote uh, Vladimir Putin. I heard that from uh, one of my neighbors, at which point I said, well, who do you think Putin would rather have in the White House right now, Biden or Donald Trump? To which he said, yeah, I guess you got a point. Anyway, we will surely talk about that on next week's program. And as regards stupid and crazy things that are being said about world events, uh, interesting development I, I see in the week that um, the New York Times thinks they may have identified who the real Q is. Apparently, two teams of linguistic detectives have independently identified the likely authors behind the QAnon conspiracy theory, Paul Ferber, a South African software developer, and Ron Watkins, a message board operator who is running for Congress as a Republican. The Times say that both men deny being Q, but they were among the first to draw attention to the writings of Q, a supposed U.S. military insider who began warning anonymously back in 2017 of a deep state of Democratic pedophiles and Satan worshipers. Ferber, age 55, is a frequent disseminator of American conspiracy theories. And I have to stop right there. Greg Palace said on last week's program he was quite familiar with conspiracies and said he wasn't a theorist so much as an expert. 
We're talking about the kind of things being peddled by QAnon. Yeah, we're talking about the, you know, tinfoil hat variety of, quote, conspiracy theories, unquote. But as we take pains to put on this program, they're not all bunk. For his part, Ron Watkins, age 34, and his father, Jim, ran the message board 8chan. Both Swiss and French experts in linguistic analysis believe Ferber created the first messages and Watkins took over as Q in 2018. Should be noted that two vocal GOP supporters of the QAnon theory got elected to Congress in 2020, including Marjorie Taylor Greene down in Georgia, who recently has decried the kind of gazpacho tactics being used by the government. She later laughed off the fact that she was confused between the two words Gestapo and Gaspacho. If these confuse you, dear listener, please take the time to look them up. Yeah, as regards this, this whole situation in Ukraine, we do want to note that former President Donald J. Trump lavished praise on Vladimir Putin for his, quote, genius, unquote, seizure of eastern Ukraine, calling the Russian autocrat, quote, very savvy, unquote, and boasting... I know him very, very well. And I got to tell you, my friends on the left that are not openly denouncing this bloodshed going on in Ukraine and somehow saying this is all our fault, uh, disturb me. Let's take a moment to toss in at least one good news item. Apparently 73% of Americans have some immunity to the Omicron variant, either through infection or vaccination or both. That's according to the University of Washington's closely watched model. That number could rise to 80% by mid-March. But that still leaves about 80 million Americans with no immunity to the virus. There's also some good news in the HIV front. Apparently, a third person has now been apparently cured of HIV. This person evidently received a transplant of stem cells taken from a relative and from the umbilical cord of a baby with a rare genetic feature, typically seen in just a few people of European and Caucasian descent, that evidently provides some resistance to HIV. Spokesman at the Emory University School of Medicine said that while this breakthrough is critical science to eventually getting us to a cure, this itself is not a scalable intervention for general use. Noting this is like sending someone on a rocket to the moon. It's great science, but it's not the way we're all going to travel. And something that speaks to a road I I fear we might travel comes uh, from the Houston Chronicle, which apparently noted this week that only 13 of the 143 Republicans running for 38 congressional seats in Texas say that President Biden really beat Donald Trump in 2020. At least 42 have said the election was stolen or they would have voted against certifying the results. Now, we know a lot of people in California and elsewhere are moving to Texas, which, which may be a good thing. There's a possibility this will raise the general IQ of the state, but we'll, we'll just have to see. Mr. Rimmel, why don't we jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for, I guess you'd say, expanding your horizons. With the news that a new survey found that 39% of pet owners admit to having sampled their pet's food before serving it to them. And 29% said it tasted surprisingly good. Yeah, 
I think, Mr. Millen, they were not referring to dry food, but, but I'm not sure. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for gun sanity, with the news that an Illinois gunmaker has introduced a version of the AR-15 designed expressly for children. The company WEE1 Tactical says its JR-15 is 20% smaller than an adult assault rifle and only fires 22 caliber ammunition, much less deadly than the .223 rounds that have made the AR-15 the weapon of choice for mass shooters. Otherwise, boasts the company, the JR-15 operates just like mom and dad's gun. And it was surely an ugly week last week for both Republicans and consenting adults with the word that all three Republican candidates to be Michigan's attorney general expressed opposition to Griswold versus Connecticut. That is the 1965 Supreme Court decision guaranteeing a married couple's right to use contraception. All three of these candidates agreed that banning birth control is a state's rights issue. Well, Griswold versus Connecticut led directly to Roe v. Wade, and I guess these clowns are just going to work their way back upstream. And we're not sure whether it's good, bad, or ugly. It's a little bit of all three, I guess, but here's the story. A woman is suing the city of Lakeway, Texas, claiming that officials closed her home daycare center because it annoyed nearby golfers. Bianca King started taking care of kids in her home with the full approval of state officials after being laid off during the pandemic. City officials later shut her down, however, after golfers reportedly complained about noise and toys in King's Yard. And alas, the legendary humorist P.J. O'Rourke passed away last week. Noted at least one obituary, P.J. O'Rourke might have been the funniest conservative ever. I guess you could say that with guys around like P.J., you, you couldn't really argue that conservative humorist was an oxymoron. Though I did get a kick out of my nephew some years back referring to Dennis Miller as former comedian Dennis Miller. Once uh, Dennis swung to the far right. I confess to being a huge admirer of P.J. O'Rourke. We, we had him on this program many years back. We're going to play an excerpt from that uh, before we're finished. I knew that if I ever got a chance to speak with him directly, there's there something I wanted to say, but I think, I'll, I think I'll save that for the actual clip. In uh, many articles and, and 20 books, P.J. married his caustic wit to a gonzo writing style that grew comparisons with Hunter S. Thompson. He targeted liberal pieties, smug elitism, and hypocrisy wherever he found it, including on the Republican Party, although he identified himself as a Republican. In fact, there's a quote we've used from PG on the show many times, and I guess there's no time like the present to, to do it again. Listening to a radio program many years back, and PJ was spouting off his philosophies about this, that, a caller said, uh, Mr. O'Rourke, your, your opinions seem to me to be very libertarian, and yet you, you call yourself a Republican. Why, why aren't you a libertarian? There was a pause, and O'Rourke said, well... I think if the great fallacy of liberals is that people are good, then the great fallacy of libertarians is that people are logical. I did not realize till I read his obituaries that for a while, back in 1996, he did a stint on 60 Minutes in the point-counterpoint. 
him being the conservative, and to my surprise, Molly Ivins as the liberal. We had Molly Ivins in this program, the late Molly Ivins in this program many years back and thoroughly enjoyed talking to her. I did not know that we had both sides of 60 Minutes covered here on Radio Parallax. I certainly did enjoy him on the NPR News Quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and I imagine that you did as well, dear listener. Uh, It did escape my notice that during a 2016 appearance on that show, he reluctantly declared that he was voting for Hillary Clinton. He said that she was wrong about absolutely everything, but that Donald Trump must be stopped. His necessary opposition to Trump did, did rankle him a little bit. Uh, he did say on the show, uh, you know, I mean, my whole purpose in life basically is to offend everyone who listens to NPR. The Economist described P.G. O'Rourke as no elitist, but an average guy, a Buick man, whose job as a teenager was to wash and wax the cars his father sold in his hometown of Toledo, Ohio. They noted that he had a master's degree in English, but earned it at a time of low quality control. He got that at Johns Hopkins, by the way. Because he was a very talented writer who liked to take pot shots at uh, so many things, we think we would do well to pay tribute to P.G. O'Rourke by quoting from his various works. I've got a pile in front of me, and I think I'll just grab some volumes and, and have at it. And I must confess at the start that I'm, I'm rather ashamed to note when we spoke, I assured P.G. O'Rourke I was going to do something that I have not, in fact, done. He'd written a book on Adam Smith. It was titled P.G. O'Rourke on the Wealth of Nations, I confessed to him that I had never read the book, but assured him that I would do so soon after conducting the interview. But I lied. But dear listener, I'm here to tell you that I vow to sit down and read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations before I'm speaking to you next. To quote from that volume, some acolytes of Adam Smith might be surprised if they ever read him. Ouch. He wrote that... The oppression of the poor must establish the monopoly of the rich, unquote. And that profit, quote, is always highest in the countries which are going fastest to ruin, unquote. Adam Smith was tough on the very people who in his time were beginning to generate the wealth of nations that he proposed to increase. Despite his friendship with merchants and manufacturers in Edinburgh and Glasgow, Smith had a cool loathing for the class, saying, quote, masters are always and everywhere in a sort of tacit but constant and uniform combination, not to raise the wages of labor. Adding, our merchants and master manufacturers complain much of the bad effects of high wages in raising the price of their goods both at home and abroad. They say nothing concerning the bad effects of high profits. They are silent with regard to the pernicious effects of their own gains. And notes PJ, he was no enthusiast for the privatization of government functions. Concerning the East India Company and its rule of Bengal, Smith wrote, The government of an exclusive company of merchants is perhaps the worst of all governments for any country, whatever. Anyway, as I recall, P.G. O'Rourke remarked that one of the most impressive things about Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, was that it had something like one diagram. Imagine an economics book with one diagram. I first crossed paths with P.G. O'Rourke when he was a writer for the National Lampoon back in the 1970s. He later claimed that his stint from 1978 to 1980 drove the magazine into the ground. 
He did jump ship to become a freelancer for a while and then landed as the foreign affairs chief for Rolling Stone. He filed dispatches about his misadventures in the Philippines, the Soviet Union, Nicaragua, and many other locales. The Economist notes that he visited 70 or so countries, carefully conducting most of his research in bars, saying, only one way to cover a story like this. Make that a double bartender, please. I did like the fact that at least one obit noted that he was quick to puncture his own team's foibles, meaning the Republicans. Said O'Rourke, Democrats promise government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass from your lawn. Republicans will tell you government doesn't work, and then get elected and prove it. Looking at a copy of his book, Eat the Rich, I note that the table of contents has, has chapters of good capitalism, which he attributed to Wall Street, bad capitalism, which he attributed to Albania, that's chapter three, chapter four was good socialism, Sweden, and chapter five was bad socialism, Cuba. I had to turn to the chapter from, on, on bad capitalism in Albania. I'd forgotten that back in the 1990s, this actually happened. The entire nation of Albania got involved in pyramid schemes. Now, you've got to keep in mind, they'd been, they'd been communist, and, and a very strange version of communist for a very long time. So their concept of what capitalism meant, let's just say they were a little, they were a little fuzzy on some of the concepts. Describing the country's transition, O'Rourke said, there had been plenty to loot. Albania's communists had required every man, woman, boy, and girl to undergo military training. Estimates the number of weapons loose in the country ranged from as high as 1.5 million. And the Albanian Defense Ministry admitted that a whopping 10.5 billion rounds of ammunition had been stolen. More than 3,000 bullets for every person in the nation. Probing the question of how Albanians got involved in pyramid schemes, he was told, well... People did not believe these were real pyramid schemes. They knew so much money could not be made honestly. They thought there was smuggling and money laundering involved to make these great profits. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks on this program stumbling into an author that has just knocked me out. His name is Sterling Seagrave. Unfortunately, the man passed away in 2017. Believe you me, he's the kind of guy we would have liked to have interviewed on this program. Although... It's possible his wife and, and, and collaborator is still alive. We, we need to look into this. He has written several fascinating books I, I hope to tell you about more in the future. The one he wrote on the, the Marcos dynasty was um, quite hair-raising. So with that in mind, I, I decided to take a look to see whether PJ had, had, had written about the Philippines. and Because uh, I, I wasn't sure. But he, oh yeah, he definitely had back in 1987. And I think this is worth a quote or two. He was visiting at this point one year after Ferdinand Marcos had been shown the door and replaced by Cory Aquino, whose husband had been murdered by the Marcos regime. Said PJ, there are more than 57 million Filipinos spread across 7,107 islands. Almost every island has a communist or Muslim insurrection of some kind. Per capita income is $652 a year. It seems hard to find an army officer who isn't ready to toss a coup d'etat, and pages could be filled just by listing the country's other problems. It would be amazing if the Cory government even knew where to start. A Freedom Week was underway. One of the features of Freedom Week was an inventor's convention. It was a modest affair. Most of the inventions had to do with improved charcoal braziers for home heat or better ways to spread water buffalo dung. 
But there was one very complicated mechanical device with a hand-lettered sign taped on the front. Mach 7 Super Machine. Compact and portable, 90% local materials, durable, all-metal parts. Very simple and practical. Will create job opportunities for the out-of-school youth. Miller O'Rourke. Here is a paradigm of the Aquino administration. Nowhere on that sign did it say what the Mach 7 super machine was supposed to do. I asked Franco, my driver. I asked Franco, the driver I'd hired for the duration of my stay, if things were better since Corey Aquino took over. Oh, yes, he said. There are lots of firecrackers. This was forbidden before. (coughs) O'Rourke went on. Some things had changed in Manila. There was a new statue of Corey's husband, the martyred Ninoy Aquino, in the Maktai Business District. Ninoy is portrayed on the steps of an airline ramp at the moment the assassin's bullets hit him. The original bronze casting had a clear plastic rod with a dove apiece mounted on the top, emerging from Ninoy's left clavicle. This made the hero of the anti-Marcos opposition look like he was getting crapped on by a pigeon. So the rod was removed, and the bird attached directly to the shoulder for a Long John Silver effect. Ninoy now looks like a drunken pirate in a business suit falling down the cellar stairs. And from his bestseller, All the Trouble in the World, PGR Rourke took a look at the lighter side of overpopulation, famine, ecological disaster, ethnic hatred, plague, and poverty, he said. I was particularly taken aback by his second chapter in that book on overpopulation. He starts out with several sections taking a look at Bangladesh which he notes has 118 million people, or did at the time, which is nearly half the citizenry of the U.S., all in a nation the size of Iowa, adding, it's crowded. But in the seventh portion of this long chapter, PJ decides to make a comparison between the population of the nation of Bangladesh and the city of Fremont, California. And in reading this, I'm horrified to realize that while Fremont at the time that O'Rourke wrote this had the same population density as Bangladesh, It's now considerably higher. Said PJ, Fremont, California has the same population density as Bangladesh. It might seem absurd to compare an American city of 178,000 with an Asian country of 118 million, but I'm not sure if I know why. Fremont is not a self-sufficient nation, but neither is Bangladesh. He notes, Fremont's boundaries encompass 10,000 acres of biologically significant ooze and goo used as, evap- as evaporation ponds by the Leslie Salt Company. A 208-acre historic farm is maintained in the north end of the town, as is a reconstructed Ohlone Indian village. The original Transcontinental Railroad ran through what is now Fremont. The Whistlestop Burg of Niles has been preserved in a reasonable amount of its entirety. Niles was used as a Wild West set for silent pictures starring Bronco Billy Anderson, Ben Turpin, Wallace Beery, and Charlie Chaplin. Movies featuring The Little Tramp were filmed in Fremont 40 years before Fremont existed. The town has a hang glider launch pad on Mission Peak, which is not true, PJ. Lots of little horse pastures and hobby ranches and even some for-profit cattle grazing in the Mission Hills. And still, within the city limits is the entire Wybell Champagne Vineyards. America's fifth largest producer of not-very-good sparkling wine. Well, as far as I know, Wybell is long gone. He goes on, Few of Fremont's buildings are over five stories high, and most are only one. Well, that's, that's changed in the past couple decades. He notes there are no bad parts of town. 
though the Chamber of Commerce and a brochure for prospective residents goes so far as to admit Fremont does have neighborhoods that are generally well-maintained but spotty in quality. Some lawns have been let go. Notes PJ is only PJ Wood. Fremont is itself blandly comfy and indistinguishable in a very nice way from much of the rest of America. The Chamber of Commerce brochure confesses, quote, few classy restaurants, unquote. He noted that California had been having a recession for several years and there are some empty shops in the Fremont malls. People are having trouble paying the bills, but no one I talked to was calling for international aid. There were no angry demonstrations in the street. Fremont is just an ordinary place. Not the stuff of dreams, perhaps, but all the substance of a decent life is there. Or maybe Fremont is the stuff of dreams. I bought a painting outside the Bahari squatter camp in Dhaka. It showed a boxy, featureless one-story house with a prominent garage. There was a lawn and plenty of flowers. A TV antenna perched on the rooftop and a little car was parked outside. It was a Bangladeshi version of Paradise on Earth. And it looked exactly like Fremont, California. Anyway, I'm not going to continue to quote about Bangladesh and Fremont, except to say that um, given my personal familiarity with the town of Fremont, California, where where I grew up, I, I would have to add, although it pains me to say this, that PJ, on this case, was full of it. I suppose I should detail why that is, but you know what? It would take a lot of time, and it wouldn't be all that damn funny. Perhaps O'Rourke's best-selling book and most famous book was titled Parliament of Horrors, subtitled A Lone Humorist Attempts to Explain the Entire U.S. Government. Said O'Rourke in the first chapter, Government is boring because in a democracy, government is a matter of majority rule. Now, majority rule is a precious, sacred thing worth dying for. But like other precious, sacred things, such as the home and family, it's not only worth dying for, it can also make you wish you were dead. Imagine if all of life were determined by majority rule. Every meal would be pizza. Every pair of pants, even those in a Brooks Brothers suit, would be stonewashed denim. Celebrity diet and exercise books would be the only thing on the shelves at the library. And Since women are a majority of the population, we'd all be married to Mel Gibson. Furthermore, he said, government is born because what's in it for us? Sure, if we own an aerospace contracting company, a 5,000-acre sugar beet farm, or a savings and loan with the president's son on the board of directors, we can soak Uncle Sucker for millions. But most of us failed to plan ahead and buy McDonnell Douglas. Now the only thing we can get out of government is government benefits measly VA checks, and Medicare. We won't get far on the French Riviera on this kind of chump change. Anyway, P.G. O'Rourke also noted that boredom isn't the only problem. American lack of interest in government is well-developed, but American ignorance of government is perfect. Almost everything we know about the workings of Congress, the presidency, the Supreme Court, and so forth come from one high school civics course and one spring vacation when Dad took the family to Washington, D.C., On the trip to Washington, we learned that the three branches of government are the White House, the top of the Washington Monument, and the tour of the FBI building. And although I could go on and on, dear listener, I recommend you you pull up some P.G. O'Rourke, pour yourself a glass of scotch, and light up a good cigar, as he would, and have at it. Now, here's my favorite little little, little clip from the time we sat down and spoke with P.G. O'Rourke. 
Ms. McMillan? Uh, back in 1974, when I was a student here, you and the late Doug Kenny put together what I thought at the time was the funniest thing I ever read, the National Lampoon 1964 High School Yearbook parody. And I would add that 33 years later, I still think it is the most <laughs> rolling-on-the-floor funny thing I've ever read. Is there any chance you're going to get the people at National Lampoon to reissue that? Well, you know, they did. Uh, uh, there is a little press uh, that is uh, there. I don't know who owns National Lampoon now. It's long ago degenerated into some sort of vomit movie uh, operation, you know, every now. About every two years they turn out a, a college vomit movie. Those of us who've been through college don't really need to see that again. They do have a, a print division, and about two years ago they, they did reprint the high school yearbook, and I think you can probably still find it on Amazon. And I was glad to say that I thought it did stand up. I think there is something universal about the high school world that just doesn't change. Uh, you know, all the changes since, I mean, we, in 1974, we were parodying a 1964 high school yearbook because we thought things had changed so much between 1964 and 1974. Of course, we were wrong. Things really hadn't changed at all. And, we should have known that because when we researched this, Doug and I dug up all these high school yearbooks dating back to the 1920s, and mm-hmm. they were exactly the same back then. High school just never changes. I'm glad I got a chance to have that exchange with him. All right, I think at this time we need to take a short break. Let's do so. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and when we come back, we're going to speak with investigator journalist Jason Cole about his most provocative piece on the Oakland Raiders.